Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about self-harm, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've been trying for a long, long time to give a voice to male detransitioners, and I've had to work and build a lot of trust up with them to get one of them on. The stigma is so high for males that there are very few out there who have shared their story publicly and even then they use pseudonyms or just first names to keep their identity private. In this week's episode, I'm checking in with Limpida, a male detransitioner from the US. I've probably got that name wrong, to be honest. L, as I'll call him on the pod for short, has only detransitioned in the last year, in May 2021, when his worldview that he believed he was a woman fell apart. L is autistic and is brave enough to admit he lived with autogynephilia, which contributed towards his desire to transition to live as a trans woman. He also had a porn addiction, which he said contributed to it as well. In this episode, we discuss self-harm he did in the form of nail-biting, which I used to suffer from myself, and high levels of anxiety he had as a child. We then move on to discuss his teenage years and how he felt an outcast of being a gender non-conforming male. He was bullied for being a sensitive and sometimes effeminate boy, and would often be accused of being gay because he preferred hanging out with girls instead of hyper-masculine males in school who would pick on him. L then got into a very toxic long-term relationship with a girl who was also autistic and ended up transitioning herself to a trans man. L said this relationship involved him being asked to perform consensual but BDSM sexual acts on his partner. He was deeply uncomfortable with doing this and he had a lot of internalised fears of being a predator and even a rapist. He says that feminist ideology encouraged him to identify as non-binary and then as a woman and we discuss how him hearing the phrase toxic masculinity made him feel like his masculinity was something he wanted to escape from. L then joined a left-wing cult whilst at university and found it difficult to retain what he had left of his mental strength through this abusive environment. He went to a Planned Parenthood clinic, started taking estrogen, age 21, and transitioned to live as a trans woman before his eventual detransition a few years later. I'm sure this podcast will massively shock most of you listeners. I'm sure this intro has probably shocked a few of you. But please listen to the whole of Elle's journey if you can and listen to it with an open mind. We need to reflect on how we are talking about masculinity when it comes to affecting the minds of teenage boys. In order to tackle toxic behaviours in teenage men, maybe we need to avoid lambasting masculinity itself. So this is how my conversation with Limpida went. Limpida, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you, mate. It is a big pleasure to have you on. I know we've been working on this for a very long time to get you on and get your voice on the podcast. So how are you getting on, mate? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Your interview with Benjamin Boyce was one of the first D-Trans male interviews I ever watched. And I hope I live up to his, I hope I live up to his interviewing skills. And I really hope that there are a lot of men who listen to this. And I also have a lot of female listeners listen to this too and take a lot of reflection. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Yes, I am. Yes, I am very excited. 
Let's start by talking about your own journey to start the pod, L. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the L we meet here? And shall we start with early childhood? Because as we'll come to find out, there's a lot to cover in this period. Yeah, so early childhood, I definitely I definitely had some mental health issues going on. I was bullied quite a bit being that I was autistic. I got diagnosed late in life though as an adult, but I was autistic and it was pretty clear that I wasn't like a lot of the other kids. And I had a lot of like hypochondriac episodes. I was convinced I was like constantly sick all the time. I had really bad anxiety. I didn't even know it was anxiety. I had started biting my nails really badly uh, at like the age of eight or so like all the way down to the blood was just constantly and still it's still sort of going on but not it's not as bad as it used to be and just generally like not fitting in well having a lot of weird tantrums and, and stuff so it started early and then around high school moved to different state moved from new york to uh, new england and there things started to get a little bit worse for me i felt sort of unmoored i didn't really know how I was supposed to fit in, how I was supposed to do anything, because I was from immigrant background, and we grew up working class family, whatever, and all of a sudden I'm hanging out with kids that have family in, like, the finance industry and stuff, so it was very jarring. I didn't know how to get along with them. And they're also, like, all, you know, red-blooded Americans and, and everything, you know, and, you know, I have my families, not half, but all of my families from Eastern Europe, so it was also a bit of a culture shock for that, too. And I was bored all the time, too, because I went from the hustle and bustle of the city to living in a mm. suburb. And it was it was really quiet, really sleepy. And found it hard to make friends. I had friends. I definitely had friends, but it was hard to keep them. I was not very emotionally stable. I had some odd cluster B-ish traits that were emerging. I fell into the self-harming epidemic, too. I had started cutting at around 13 or 14 then sophomore year of high school, I met this girl. We were together for eight years, and she introduced to me Tumblr. And I spent a lot of my time on Tumblr, and with her, we spoke pretty much every day, hours and hours and hours. We spent a lot of time together throughout that entire eight-year period, so throughout high school, throughout college. And she introduced me to trans. She actually had socially transitioned for a bit as a female to male. When she let go of that, she came out to me as a lesbian, but said that she wanted to stay together. And I didn't really know what to do. I like she was as far as like that entire time frame, she was like my rock. But she was also like a really intense feminist. And I was too. I was like a male feminist. But over time, there was less and less of the uh, oh, this is about how men and women can learn to live together and more about how men are the oppressors and men do all this awful stuff. And that coupled with this burgeoning gender ideology where you can sort of just pick and choose whatever you want to be, that became appealing to me because I was in this environment where, you know, it was a bad thing to be a man and, oh, you can choose to not be mm -hmm. one. So that's how that started. And so I started off identifying as non-binary in that relationship. Before I graduated high school, I decided that I was just a straight up trans woman. No medicine yet, no hormones or anything yet, but I definitely wanted them. And I had a lot of fights with my parents about it. 
And that was difficult in its own right because that was a constant touch point of a controversy, a massive friction between us, along with a lot of other things. It was not the calmest of households. There were tensions between my parents and my grandparents and things like that, and, and that was making things worse. There were health issues coming up for my mom, and she wasn't handling them that well. And my dad was working hours and hours. I mean, he had to travel two hours just to get his, to his job as a UPS driver. So he was working eight hours a day, but eight, nine, ten hours a day, and then driving like four hours total back and forth. So it was a very stressful time for them. It was a very stressful time for me, my little brother too. He was kind of just forgotten in all of this. Not, not great, not great at all. Then college came and I fell apart entirely. I fell apart entirely. I lost all the structure that I had. I like lost connection to other friends. I cut some people off too, just very impulsively. And, and I, I became an agoraphobe and I started drinking a lot. I started smoking a lot of weed. I lived in, inside my dorm. I had food delivered to me instead of even walking to the dining hall because I was just afraid of being out in public. And part of that was because of the gender because I was like, well, I look like a guy and I feel like a woman, whatever that means. So I barely went out. And whenever I did go out, it was to go to these meetings for this activist group that turned out to be a cult. It started off as like a Bernie Sanders thing, like to try to get Bernie Sanders elected. This was 2015, so he still had a chance. And then when he lost, they transitioned into something else. They called themselves college progressives. And then from there, it formed all these different like splinter groups, like identitarian type stuff. And but the the main focus of it was race. Like it was very much like race centric. And we all said that we were socialists or anarchists or communists or whatever. But at the core of our analysis was was race about like the white supremacy, the colonialism and everything like that. Most of the group was still white, but there was a very large non-white contingent. There were internal factions within it too, some cliques that were a little bit closer to each other as friends basically, and the clique that I was in was headed up by this Muslim woman who, uh, she was just insane. She was just so insane. She was the one that was always looking for ideological witch hunts, like trying to tear people down that might be a threat to her somehow or even just like slighted her in some way you know just been disrespectful or lied or or something or disappointed her and she was always willing to throw herself into the fray whenever somebody else had other problems so this group started out pretty large after this big protest that we had done that was not even that successful but we had a lot of attention so it was about 50 people at first and it slowly started to prune people away because, oh, you're too liberal. Oh, you like you have bad opinions about this thing. You have bad opinions about that. It was a very purist mindset. And I participated in that, too. I'm not going to pretend like I didn't. But I found myself in, the, in this tiny little clique that was extremely toxic and, you know, very reverse racist, quote unquote. But I mean, basically straight up just racist against white people and hating men and, and everything like that. And, and you had to have the right opinions to be in there at all, to have a voice at all. And I ended up living with some of these members. I ended up being on the receiving end of a witch hunt over something that I'm sure didn't actually happen. They told me that I said something racist to a black member and then told me that they were going to segregate me from the rest of the house and put up a curtain so that they didn't have to see me. 
and uh, I lost access to the stove. I lost access to the to the washing machine, to the dishwasher, everything. So I had to I had to buy my own like electric appliances and start going to the laundromat myself. It was not fun. But I also was just like totally alone. They told me I couldn't talk to anybody, and I found out after the fact that most of the people that were in the group had no idea why I had fallen off the face of the planet. They didn't know that I was on the receiving end of a restorative justice hearing or whatever. But the real gripes with me were, it wasn't really about that. It was actually about, I wasn't that good of a roommate. I was messy. I wasn't cleaning up after myself. And I was genuinely kind of psycho. I was not doing well. When I started living with them, I had run away from home, essentially. And and I was planning on living there full time. And I was smoking so much weed and I was having hallucinations and bouts of really bad anger not that I took it out on anybody but I was just like there'd be times where I'd just be yelling in my car about the state of the world and everything and people would hear me and it wouldn't be good and I started to really lose touch with reality as well because I was inside all the time on my phone or playing computer games or stuff like that and, and seeing really horrible things too I was having um psychotic delusions of war and mass shootings and stuff and, and just like seeing that stuff like I knew it wasn't real but I was still seeing it it wasn't good so they were concerned about me and they wanted me out but they didn't want to confront me directly about that stuff so they made up this thing and told me that I had to be separate from everybody else and that just made everything a lot worse because that was my only <laughs> that was my only social support mm. system other than my girlfriend and at the same time my girlfriend broke up with me in the middle of that period we kept seeing each other for sex, essentially, you know, she asked me if that was okay, and I was like, uh, sure, because I didn't have anybody else, and, um, it was around that same time that I went to a Planned Parenthood, signed some informed consent forms, and, um, within an hour, I was prescribed estrogen and spironolactone. I started taking them. I got rescued by my grandparents, essentially. I got kicked out of that place. I found a different apartment. That place fell apart, because of other reasons but then definitely not my fault I've not that not my fault in that case for sure my roommate was a little bit crazy but I, I got out of there too I started living with my grandparents I still live with my grandparents and then the pandemic hit my ex and I broke it off entirely we went no contact essentially I had a lot of time to myself to try to figure out what had just happened what I was going to do with my life what exactly was going on with the trans stuff and once I had like de-radicalized myself a bit and realized like okay all this stuff that I used to believe in that made me like really fearful of the cult and everything and, and made me follow that stuff I realized a lot of it was like fake and obviously there was a lot of stuff going on in the news with the riots and whatnot that I developed a new analysis right it helped for a while and I sort of decoupled like my trans identity from the politics and then at that point, I was, like, convinced, like, oh, I, I was born in the wrong body, you know, stuff like that. And, and I thought that the estrogen was helping me and whatnot. And started seeing a, a therapist for trauma, a PTSD therapist. She helped a lot. She did help a lot, but she never really confronted the whole gender issue because she said it wasn't really her place. But the, the therapy helped. I cried a lot. I went through a lot of really bad memories. And I was still iffy on the mental health thing for a while. And then May of 2021, I was like, well, something's wrong, right? So I had my, I had about a year, year and a half-ish 
where I was like, okay, trans is working out for me. Like the medicine, is, the quote unquote medicine is helping me. I feel, I feel a lot better. I feel a lot more present. And at the end of that year and a half, I was just like, okay, well, this is going to be the rest of my life. And there's some risks here. And there's some sad realities. Like if I stay on these meds for too long, I won't be able to have kids. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to find a life partner either. Not totally sure of what my orientation was either, because estrogen had kind of really fucked with my sexuality. So I was, you know, I originally originally I was only attracted to women, and then after the fact, I was attracted to to men as well, and that was really jarring because I didn't, I had no real desire for that. I was not doing well, and I was starting to have a lot of mood issues, and I was still experiencing some psychosis from time to time, even though I had stopped smoking weed and I didn't really know what was going on and eventually came into contact with some writing about autogynephilia and started to read into it a lot because I wanted to understand, like, why had I done this to myself, right? And uh, I read Men Trapped in Men's Bodies by Dr. Anne Lawrence, who is herself a, an autogynephilic transsexual. And at first I was reading like one testimony and I was like, that doesn't really sound like me. And then another testimony and I was like, okay, there's like two similarities here and then another one. And eventually I found that like broad strokes, things are pretty similar for me. But the details are a little different. And I still didn't fully want to believe that I had AGP because... The way that the theory went, the way that it was originally observed and described, you know, it broke transsexuals down into homosexual transsexuals and autogynephilic transsexuals. And the homosexual ones were young, they were feminine, they were they were young, they were feminine, they passed better as women, etc., etc. And then the AGPs were older and heterosexual, and autogynephilia itself, like, is, um, you know, the sexual fetish of wanting to be a woman. And I couldn't really believe, you know, because there were some aspects of my transition where I sort of straddled the two a little bit. Like, I was not an older man. I was not a middle-aged man. I'm a young man. And I had been experiencing it since I was a teenager and, and things like that. I did have feminine qualities. I did have some feminine qualities. I was very sensitive growing up. I was not very sporty. I had an artistic impulse. I was into writing. I was into photography, art history, that kind of thing. The um, stereotype of the AGP is that he's like a computer coder in his 40s or he goes into the military or something like that. And that wasn't really me. So it was hard to parse that stuff out. And then I came across um, Lisa Littman's work on rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I found that that fit a lot better. The only thing that was missing was the sexual component. Because after a time I realized, okay, well, there is a sexual component here, but I don't fully understand where it came from or why or or something like that because there is that component but it wasn't the overriding reason I transitioned right it was I hated being a man I hated myself I wanted to destroy myself I wanted to uh, erase everything that I was and rebuild myself as, as this other person and it wasn't necessarily because I was just so like horny to like be a woman or anything I was just very afraid of being a man and one of the ways in which that was true was when I was with my ex like I had a lot of anxiety about like um well I had a lot of anxiety during sex a lot of panic during sex where I would 
be terrified of this thought would always play in my head which was uh, you're raping her right now you're committing sexual assault you're doing this you're doing that and it didn't help that she had some violent fantasies that she wanted me to participate in that I was a little uncomfortable doing but then it came back to the feminist mantras like um, you know make a girl come for once or stuff like that like yo you're selfish if you're not willing to indulge. So there was like two things conflicting in so what you were getting told was actually conflicting with the pain that you were in essentially they were contradicting each other yeah very much so yeah so so that was the primary crux of, of the transition and so it was it was a, a little bit of autogranophilia i mean in order to have any sexuality at all i kind of had to pretend i was a woman because otherwise those thoughts would constantly race in my head then to finish off the life story right not to finish it off i guess but to to get to the point where i'm at now i took several months of deep research and deep sort of emotional turbulence and whatnot. I got into grad school. I went into education to teach history. History has always been one of my great loves. And decided I was going to detransition, but I didn't know how or when until finally January of 2022. So not that long ago, just a couple months ago. <laughs> it kind of happened a little bit by accident. I, I got re-addicted to cigarettes. I started smoking again. And when you're on estrogen, they tell you absolutely should not do that whatsoever because it elevates the risk of blood clots by like factor of 10 or something and so I had to pick like do I want to quit estrogen or do I want to quit cigarettes and I ended up choosing to quit estrogen instead of cigarettes because I said this is probably better for me <laughs> you know <laughs> and you know since then I've adjusted really well really well I was I was really afraid of all the changes that were going to come in and most of them have come in so far, and I'm not terrified of them. I was able to get to a point where, like, okay, being a man is not a bad thing. It's it's a neutral thing. It happens. Yeah. Half, half, the, half the world is, a ma is male. And there are a lot of positives to being male that I never took advantage of, that I never wanted to take advantage of, that I was always um, afraid of and would pretend weren't there. And now that they're here, like... I really can't complain. I have so much energy. I love uh, working out and I love the fact that I feel assertive enough to do things on my own and not have to like wait for somebody else to tell me and, and stuff like that. And, and also not being as emotional. I used to cry a lot when I was on estrogen. I would cry at least once a day and sometimes very, very deeply and sometimes for hours. And now I, I don't really cry that much and it's fine. It's really fine. I mean, it's still okay to cry, but just not maybe <laughs> um, that intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still, I still cry. I, I won't lie. I cried, I cried a little bit yesterday, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not sitting there for literally hours and hours just trying to get the catharsis mm. out. And honestly, it's, it's how I was meant to be. This other stuff was, was totally artificial and was really bad for my health. So I'm, I'm just happy mm. to be healthy again. Well, you've taken an absolute sledgehammer to my running order. That was 27. That was almost 20 minutes of uninterrupted speech. So you've gone through all of the topics I had, basically. So I'm going to work through which ones I need to go back to here. So I think the first one I want to come back to, L, is on your transition, why did you identify as non-binary first? Why didn't you go straight to trans? Because there was a part of me that knew that that wasn't true. I knew I wasn't really a girl inside, but I felt like there was some parts of me that were feminine, that were female. And and it was also the trendy thing to right. do, right? It was the more oppressed category than to just be straight up trans. So I, I picked that instead because I also like, 
I still mostly wore guys' stuff. I just looked like a gay guy because I was I was stylish, you know. I was very trendy. I was up up on the, you know, I had all the slim fits and everything. <laughs> so um, so I thought I thought okay, well I'm only partially a girl. And then as my mental health declined and as my uh, hatred of of men increased, I started to think okay, well maybe I'm not non-binary. Maybe I'm just a woman. So on that as well, then, given what you spoke about with the autism, and I've spoken to quite a few autistic people, and one of the big things, as you'll know, is is a lack of ability to see beyond black and white or see nuanced thinking. It's it's very black and white a lot of the time when it comes to people's, especially if you're more severely on the spectrum. How did that affect you? Did you think, as you probably alluded to, because I don't behave like this stereotypical boy or boy group, I must be a woman because I feel these things which aren't stereotypically masculine, they're more stereotypically feminine, but you didn't think, oh, I can inhabit both of those and be chill with myself. Yeah, that was very much a, a large part of it. And part of it too was, it's not just that, it's not just the fear of being a feminine man or lightly feminine, I'm not even that feminine <laughs> if I'm being real. But it was also just, uh, you know, men do this bad thing, therefore it's bad to be a man. That was really the bigger part of it. So I thought that the fact that I had some feminine qualities, because everybody has masculine and feminine qualities, meant that I could excuse myself from what I viewed as, like, oppressive. And, And a lot of the stuff that I thought was oppressive was just, like, inane bullshit that some women found annoying. We've seen a lot in this space, L. we've seen a lot of women talk about husbands who have transitioned and they've been called trans widows. But your girlfriend was actually encouraging you to transition. It wasn't your dirty little secret. She was openly saying to you, you know, go for it. Why do you think she did that? And why do you think she also shut down any doubts you were having post-transition? That's a lot there, Uh, I know, but I think I had to ask that question. I think part of it was she... I do think that a lot of it was that she genuinely hates men. I do think that she hates men and she is afraid of the fact that she is attracted to men. And I I am assuming a lot in that. I don't fully know whether she does like men or not, but I mean, she was with me for eight years and she was like constantly like, you know, I'm not disgusted by you. I, you know, you, your body is really nice and things like that. So there's no, I'm not convinced that she is as gay as she thought she was. I think also that to a certain extent, like, she liked emasculating me to a certain extent. She liked rounding out the softer edges. So I think part of what happened, and a lot of this is me trying to get into her head, so if it's not accurate or something, or if she finds this and and wants to, like, burn my house down or something, we'll see. But um, so she had the social transition. She wanted to be, like, an anime boy, like one of the anime boys that she liked to read about or one of the men in her fan fiction that she liked to read and, and... whatever like there was a lot of erotic fan fiction that she was into she would show it wasn't like one direction was it because i've talked about that with helena (laughs) no it wasn't one direction it was uh dr jesus christ Uh, and then later it was anime too so yeah yeah we were both really into dr who stuff i dressed like the doctor sometimes and she really which version (laughs) both 10 and 11 right there's a lot there there's a lot there she obviously had a lot going on so on that there is probably going to be a lot of male listeners who listen to this L and there's going to be a few listeners who are female. And you said to me that it was this feminist ideology, which was making you hate yourself and the idea of your masculinity and wanting to transition. So for the feminists who are listening to this, 
what would you say to them? What can be done to help, I don't know, harmonize this, what seemingly is a ridiculously fractious relationship between the sexes? Um, to the feminists, I would just say, like, the oppressor-oppressed dynamic that they think exists doesn't exist. Like, I think the world is a lot more complicated than that. And I also think at present, you know, women have a lot more social power than they've ever had. And I think that some of this trans stuff is actually because of that. Something I keep bringing up that feminists on, on Twitter keep reaming me about is that women are really the ones driving the trans movement forward. Obviously, like the social contagion element, women are more susceptible to it. But because women are more susceptible to it, they're also the ones that are the vectors of it. Like they're the ones spreading it. They're the ones like coming up with all the rules about what's right to say, what's not right to say. A lot of the um, more speculative genders, we'll say, the ones that are like void gender or space gender or something, that's all girls. Wait, Boys are what? Not doing that's that. new ones. I haven't heard that before. Space gender. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those. That's a big time. I've heard of the too. gray sexual, asexual stuff, but I've never heard of the void gender. What's that? Void gender. Uh, made up. I couldn't tell you. It's the absence of a gender, but it's the profound absence of a gender. So it's not just a gender, it's void gender. Oh, I was thinking like it was going to be yeah. some science fiction related thing, like a Mass Effect related thing. <laughs> but no, I was wrong on that. It could be. It could be. A lot of it is, is just, uh, it's it's writing fan fiction about yourself, right? And and that's mostly something that, I think both sexes do dabble in it, but I think that women are more prone to doing that kind of thing. And definitely... On Tumblr, like, it was women that were driving it forward. And it was women that were feminists. From the female angle, part of the reason that my ex wanted to transition was not just because she found the idea of being a man hot, but also because she was terrified of being a woman. And and part of the reason she was terrified of being a woman was because of all the feminist talk about female oppression and how like oh it's so likely for you to get assaulted it's so likely for you to get raped you're going to be victimized no matter what you do and it's all going to be men's fault etc etc and the only way that this can be remedied is if we change male behavior and and etc etc so she wanted to opt out of being a female because from all the feminist indoctrination she was told like her destiny was going to be victim anyway Whereas for me, I was being told that my destiny was going to be oppressor anyway. Um, yeah. So it sounds like she didn't have autoandrophilia, which is, from what Helena tells me, the desire for a female to transition and then chase after gay men because they say they are gay trans boys. But she was influenced by feminist ideology to internalize hatred of her own sex because she thought she was going to be a victim in later life if she accepted her body. Is that correct? It was both. Oh, my God. It was both. It was both. Yeah. And, and I say this for myself, too. Like, when it comes to, oh, was it feminist ideology telling you that you're going to be oppressor, or was it because you found the idea of being a girl hot? It was both. It's, it's always both for all of these people. And for my ex, it, it very much was that way. Because she, I mean, she really, she read a lot of gay erotica she was very into that and i think part of the reason why she transitioned and wanted to be with me was because she could have been a gay trans boy like that right yeah. so okay um, yeah 
It's a lot to unpack there, but I'll ask a different question now. On your medical transition, mm -hmm. mate, you obviously said in July 2019 you got that appointment at Planned Parenthood and then you started the medical transition, HRT, estrogen, testosterone blocker. Uh, this is obviously an obvious question, but did it feel an extensive and correct assessment? And then on the extreme end, do you think that what you went through was child abuse? Well, I wasn't a child, so it wouldn't have been child abuse. I was 21, so I was an adult. But I think it was abuse. I would consider it like a medicalized rape to a certain extent because I went there looking for help. I had these like very intense and severe issues with gender. I had this like horrible body dysmorphia. I didn't understand what I looked like or anything like that. And they didn't screen me for anything. They didn't tell me, you know, they didn't consider whether I might have experienced PTSD, might have been sexually abused in the first place, might have an eating disorder. They didn't consider any of that. I told them that I was depressed and anxious and had gender dysphoria, and they told me I was an ideal candidate for HRT. That's as far as it went. Right. And then going back to the self-harm, if we can, mate, and this is something that we chatted about off air because I suffered with it from a really long time. I still bite my skin a little bit, but it's nowhere near as severe as I used to do it. When you were doing it, what did it give you? Was it a communication tool? Was it an emotional release? What did it do for you? It was uh, a sensory release, kind of. Because with autism, I'm not a super, like, sensory type autistic. I have, like abnormal hearing abilities and whatnot but i'm not like one of the jittery people that like can't handle certain textures or foods or something but i am like sort of chronically understimulated especially if i haven't like exercised in a while or if i've been like really super stressed out like all i want to do is like move around like it's sort of an adhd kind of thing but when i was super super anxious i would feel like blocked off from everything like i would feel under stimulated i wouldn't i felt like i wasn't receiving enough information and so biting my nails was mostly like okay well i'm i'm grounding myself and reminding myself that i'm like actually here but part of it was also just like that's what the nail biting was for but the actual cutting and the intentionally harming myself and everything like that was a communication tool for sure that was also a validation of how much i hated myself too like proving okay i'm really ill and I really need help. You know, will someone please help me kind mm. of thing. Before we reflect on your journey, I just want to talk a little bit about the relationship you were with with that girl. I mean, I don't know if she's identifying as a trans man still or not, but I won't get into that. No, no, she she desisted within okay, a couple of cool. years. So on the intimacy part then, she was obviously feeling this internalized hatred of herself, but then asking you to commit these consensual but sexually quite violent acts on her and i think that's a whole other podcast to be honest but yeah. how did you get out of that mindset where you were thinking you were a potential predator or a potential rapist how did you get to a place where experiences like this were positive beneficial and safe well while i was with her the way i did that was dissociating and telling myself i was a woman and this is something that women do and whatever and so pretending to be a woman was, was one way of making it feel safe. That just made it more dangerous, honestly. Especially, you know, you're mixing dissociation with very powerful emotional releases and whatnot. It's just, it's just not good. But we stopped seeing each other. And now, uh, honestly, like, that's something that I still sort of have problems with a little bit. That's still something that's in the back of my mind. I haven't been out 
and about in the dating scene or anything. Don't go on the apps. Haven't had any casual. <laughs> I'm not. No, no, Lord, no. I haven't asked anybody out. I haven't had any casual encounters or anything like that. I think I had like maybe one person flirt with me, but that's like about it. I'm not really that interested in that. Not necessarily because I'm afraid of. Well, yeah, no. I think it is because I still have that fear in the back of my mind worried about like you know how am i supposed to approach without looking like a creep and even just thinking about like what if it gets hot and heavy or anything like how do you initiate that and how do you um you know that's not something that comes easy to me right now and part of the reason for that is because it did come a little bit more naturally when i was pretending to be a woman with guys just because it was easier to sort of get in their heads and think about what they would want me to be like but now with girls, it's, you know, that's something that I, I have time to work oh, through, definitely, mate. I think. It's only been a couple yeah. months. You've got so, time, mate. You've yeah. got time. When it comes to your masculinity, then, you mentioned that the gym has been a really big help for you. What has helped you center it or what has helped you become accepted within your own masculinity and help you feel better? Well, for one, really just a lot of that was ideological. A lot of that was like eliminating the feminist brain worms from myself and starting to see reality for what it is as far as like what the sexes are actually like they are different they are definitely different men and women are different but we're different but the same like broad strokes we're still humans we still get along in the world in, in a specifically human way but in the details we're a little bit different so I, I am not someone who thinks that men are, are uniquely prone to violence in general. I think we're more prone maybe to physical violence. But I think women are just as capable of inflicting massive emotional Reputational, violence. Reputational, it's how they're different. Yeah. Or social yeah. violence. Yeah. As human beings, like, we're not that different. And I, and I try to remind myself, like, okay, like, there are... And it's it's easier for me to do that now that I've been through the ringer and... And now that I've also come out publicly about, or not super publicly, I'm still anonymous, but about detransition, like, I've been tackling the dogmas more methodically, right? And and I've been trying to not think about the world in terms of, like, how do we get to equality? How do we, how do we progress society forward or anything like that? I just think about, okay, well, like, I don't necessarily believe in those those ideals anymore. And I think that that's really helped with coming to grips with like, okay, what is the function of masculinity in society? Like, what does that actually do? And trying to embody a light ideal of what masculinity might be that I think is lacking mm -hmm. right now. And, and just being, you know, being direct, being straightforward, being honest and trying not to let other people's feelings hijack how mm -hmm. you think about certain things. When I've spoken privately to lads, in my own social networks and I say I'm interviewing a detransition male obviously they're very very shocked but the one thing actually that comes up quite a lot they always say how do you come back from that and for you L you can now pass in the world we're doing this on video but we're not recording this on video so I can tell that you can just pass and no one have a clue that you transitioned back in the day or a few years ago so how have you come back from it uh, <laughs> that's still a work in progress, surprisingly. I think if you were to see me full body, it would be a little bit more obvious that I've transitioned. I still have the breasts. Those are not going to go away. I would need surgery to remove them. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that because I'm a little terrified of surgery. I've never had surgery. So and that was one of the reasons I detransitioned actually was because I was still feeling uh, gender dysphoric. 
And then uh, my nurse was like, oh, yeah, the next step is surgery. And I was like, oh, right. Let me think about that. And then I was like, okay, well, if the hormones aren't helping, then I'm not sure how surgery is going to help, you know. But how would I come back from that? I let the changes come as they were coming in. I, ta- I tackled one thing at a time as, as they changed. So my energy level spiked. I just started going to the gym. My libido came back. I started to, you know, deal with that how I deal with that, you know. And, and, I, and I tried not to place any sort of value judgment on it. And if I felt myself getting, like, sort of grossed out by some of the changes, honestly, I just, I just was like, listen, look, it's going to be an adjustment. Don't worry about it. And I was not planning on going all in at first. I was still planning on being, like, a little bit more fruity than I am, for lack of a better word, like a little bit more feminine than, than, than I am now. But, you know, as they come in, as I got more comfortable, as I settled in, like, I just sort of did whatever I had to do. I didn't try to think about it too hard. I like to think that most rational, compassionate adult men would happily accept you back in when you socially transitioned into male environments and male groups. This is a bit of a loaded question. Obviously, you are still pretty anonymous, but have you received more abuse from men after detransitioning or women? Women. Easily women. I think I've only had a negative interaction with men a few times and like, all right, so the only negative interactions I've had with men have been men who are still identifying as trans with perhaps one exception of somebody who is pretty sure a chaser, like someone who's really into like into chicks with dicks, as they say. But otherwise, all the abuse has been coming from women, all of it. And it's mostly feminist women because they don't like the fact that I bring up the fact that all my nurses were women, all my therapists were women, all the ones that were encouraging the transition. They don't like that I talk about the role that feminism played in my transition. They don't like to hear about how uh, my girlfriend was enthusiastic about it. They preferred to think that I was I was the um, AGP abuser and now there's a trans widow out there or I tricked this lesbian into, into staying with me forever or whatever. I mean, I'm not going to say that I was a perfect guy. It was a very toxic relationship on both ends. I got to be real with that. I was not exactly the paragon of mental health i was i'm pretty sure i was a a moderate narcissist for a while to complement her borderline tendencies i guess but and then it sort of flipped it was weird you know i was not a perfect victim any more than she was but they prefer to believe that it was just this straight up story of i'm just this porn sick freak who was uh forcing my fetish down her throat and really a lot of that was sort of the reverse but they don't want to hear that because it clashes with their idea of of what women and men are like, where women are just like perfect victims at all times, right? So it's been a lot of that. And then I've also had to deal with a lot of women that are just like recently, at least there's been controversies about like, how do you deal with AGP and teenagers? How do you keep them from developing AGP? And there's this all this like ridiculous discourse about it. And they hate the fact that there are men out there increasingly saying like, listen, it's not as simple as you think it is. AGP is just part of it. It's a very small part of it for this cohort of boys. A lot of them are developing it because they were groomed. A lot of them are sexually traumatized. A lot of them were exposed to porn at like nine years old. And they think that when a girl is exposed to porn at nine years old, that that's abuse because it is abuse. But when a boy is exposed to porn at nine years old, that makes him an addict for life or something and not worthy of, of any sort of sympathy. I was exposed to porn at nine years old. That shit really fucked me up 
that really fucked me up. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like I was like constantly raping my girlfriend who was enthusiastically having sex with me. It was, yeah. So there's not a lot of sympathy for the boy side of things in part because of how it's filtered through these ideological lenses. And that's why the women are more abusive to me than the men are. The men have been like, my God, I'm so sorry. You know, this, it's unbelievable what you've had to go through, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the women I interact with are like that too. Almost all the female detransitioners are just incredibly sympathetic. They're like, yeah, we know how it is. A lot of the moms of ROGD kids, they're like, this is horrible what you've gone through. Like you were groomed at such a young age and these doctors just lied to you and told you they were helping you and whatnot. Most people generally are very supportive, but there is this contingent of women that just cannot stand the fact that I'm speaking badly about some women out there in society. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, Elle. So you're beyond this transition, detransition now. You're in your mid-twenties. How have all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today? And if you could go back and talk to the 13-year-old Elle who was being bullied for not conforming to stereotypical male gender roles, the Elle who was self-harming, the Elle who was questioning whether he was a predator, or the Elle who was just about to contemplate detransitioning, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I would say um, you don't understand the meaning of what you're going through yet. You don't understand that this is something a lot of people go through. You don't understand that there is no easy fix to any of it. It's always a process. It's always going to take time. You have to be patient. I would say um, you have a strong enough will to get through most of this by yourself. Not totally by yourself, but you, you can lift yourself up. You just don't know how to do it yet. You don't need the help of strange professionals to tell you like what you're what you are and what you're what you're doing and you especially don't need chemical help with any of this. Most of it comes from you. Everything else everything that you put into your body to try to help you just made things harder. So the power to change is within you. That's what I would say. I want to talk now about your early journey into D-trans online commentating. I'm not going to call it advocacy. You don't want to call it that, L. So first of all, for the listeners, why did you want to take this step? And what is the meaning behind your pseudonym? So I took that step for two reasons. One was because there were not many male D-trans stories out there. And it was very difficult for me to deal with what exactly was going on with me in an environment where the only real options, I guess, were either to uh, remain trans and remain in the like trans TRA type side of things, or to admit AGP and all this stuff and then get called like a man-hating misogynist who fetishizes everything and jerks off in women's rooms and, th and things like that. So there was no middle road. There was no, um, you know, okay, well, this is the reality of what it's like. And reading a lot of what the female detransitioners have written, I think of Grace at Hormone Hangover. I think of Helena at LaCroix. I don't know how you say that <laughs> in real life, but... I read their testimonies and, I, and I've listened to them uh, speak about their experiences and in a lot of ways, like it overlaps a lot with mine. 
and I decided that I thought it would be helpful for other people going through the same thing to hear it from someone who's been through it in that age cohort, who's been around those like internet circles, who had been embedded within the culture, to talk about it openly and to try to deconstruct some of the arguments about AGP that had been had been um, brought up by feminists, which blame it as the root of all evil for so many things, when really, you know, I think it's more of a symptom of, of other things. I don't think that it is the root of everything, but of course they can't believe otherwise. So that's that's how I started writing about it. But the other reason was because I needed to get it out. I needed to be able to tell whether I was on the right track or not. I needed, and, and I didn't feel comfortable talking to people in my life about it. Oddly enough, being anonymous online, you can talk about more than if you were to be honest with everybody in life. Not that I was like totally dishonest. I'm honestly like I was more intimate with my immediate friends and family about some of this stuff than I was online. But they don't know how to tell me whether I'm on the right track or not. They don't know how to tell me whether these experiences track with what they've seen or not, because they don't know the lingo. They don't know, you know, they don't know the the circles that I've been in, they don't, because I was distant for a long time. I was cut off for a long time. So they can't tell me necessarily. They don't know the theories. They don't know what autogynephilia is. Even if you explain it to them, they're like, all right, I guess, you know, they don't fully get that. And they don't get how it's related to autism. They don't. So talking about it, writing about it openly, like I got some attention from commentators have been following it for a while I got some attention from psychologists and therapists and whatnot and part of it too was like realizing something horrible had been done to me I mean I chose to do it as well but for all intents and purposes like doctors shouldn't be doing this to people and I felt like it was necessary to explain like listen everybody who's getting run through this right now is being experimented on and it's not just the girls it's the guys too those were the reasons why I got into it. As for where my pseudonym comes from, it rhymed with my trans name a little bit. So that was like my internet pseudonym last name. Online, I've never been under my real name. So I've always had a pseudonym no matter what. And in Romanian, limpida means pure, honest, clear. And it's still in the feminine uh, version. It's it's a feminine, it's like a, we have a gender system in the language. So it's a, it's still in the feminine form. But I kept it just because it's like I want to be honest about stuff. You know, I want to try to be clear-headed about what happened. And that's that's kind of the, uh, the extent that's of it. That's a good overview, mate. You work in education. I won't say where or in what mm-hmm. role. And you wanted to talk about how what you went through is now happening with a lot of other kids. So tell me about your fears and concerns here. Oh, I could go all day about the state of education. No, it's it's really bad. I think where to start with it is um, teachers are now in the United States. I can't speak for other countries, obviously, but teachers are um, being trained to be social activists before they're being trained to be teachers. I am one of maybe two or three other people in my grad school cohort that do actually have extensive knowledge in our content areas. Everyone else is sort of pivoting from some other job and they're just getting certified and they're going with the flow. You know, they're not really 
thinking about what they're being told or what they're being taught. And I mean, literally, dude, I had class two days ago and my professor, this was in a, a literacy course. So how do you, you know, how do you keep, teach literacy skills to, to students? So I teach high school and this guy was like, you should read picture books to your high schoolers. Good idea. And I'm like, how does that, how does that boost literacy at all? That doesn't practice anything. It, like that's that's the state. It's ironic because my jaw is on the floor um, more for keep... that than anything that you've said so far. <laughs> <laughs> True, I noticed that. Yeah, just completely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's 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 insane. And one of the reasons for this is because there have been three major developments since since COVID. But some of these things were brewing beforehand, too. One is the over-reliance on digital technology is absolutely killing kids' attention spans. They can't focus. And we're using laptops and everything. My school is basically paperless. And the principals get upset when you see that you're handing out a paper worksheet, you know. You're you're supposed to try to do everything online, which means that kids are just going to play games until you show up and they switch tabs, you know. So that's one problem. Another problem is this focus on social emotional learning it's also referred to as sel and it is absolutely rampant it's everywhere every school's got it every teacher uses it and the vulgar way i can describe it is it's basically a grooming handbook the way that it explains itself is about teaching kids social and emotional skills incorporating those skills into sounds the okay. curriculum sounds good from but well meaning that, at the start yeah Sounds good and well-meaning, but then you read the actual handbooks and it's all about how do you get them to listen to you because you're an important emotional figure in their lives rather than how do you get them to listen to you because what you're teaching them is important. Oh, I see what you, you mean know? now. Yeah. And the problem with a lot of it is that part of the way they test it too, there was a video that somebody had sent me a couple of days ago of this teacher doing this uh, activity with these with these students that looked like they were like seven or eight years old where she would show them a shape that was a certain color and she would tell them like if it was a square and it was red she would tell them you ignore what the shape on the card is and you only pay attention to the color so when you see the red square that means that you make a circle with your hands and then on and on with other shapes and what it was trying to show was that they were listening to her because she was their teacher and because they were fond of her and they wanted to impress her and everything like that. And the only reason that they were doing like the wrong shapes was because she was telling them to do that. So it's sort of like preparing kids for, you know, social construction theory and, and that kind of thing, like learning, teaching them how to ignore what they see, like how to ignore their instincts, how to ignore what comes natural to them. And that, I think, is part of the problem is that these practices are used widely. Like, it's not even questioned. That sounds like um, absolute bollocks, by the way. <laughs> it is. It is. It really is. And I think it's part of the reason why students are doing so poorly, too, is because they're trying to impress their teachers. They're not really trying to learn. And not that everyone tries to impress their teachers, but, I mean, it helps, you know. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it, too, is that, like, in most of New England, for instance... <laughs> As a teacher, you're required to use a student's chosen name and pronouns. So there's not even a uh, question about what you're supposed to do in that situation. So you, you have to do it or else you could get like hit with like a Title IX suit or something. Uh, I don't know if it's Title IX specifically, but it is like a gender discrimination type thing. And the teachers are very afraid of stepping into that because that could mean the end of your career. And, you know, there are some principals that are super 
into doing that. There are some teachers that are super into doing that too. There are a lot of groomer teachers out there. I've come across two of them in my short time in education. I think my professor counts as one of them too because he reads like LGBT kids books to a bunch of third graders and I, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of that either. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just getting, sh- I'm, I'm just getting shocked more and more by what I hear, mate. You spoke yeah. a little bit about Tumblr earlier there, mate, and the influence of it, and I guess social media more widely, on children with gender dysphoria and children in general too. There is a worrying trend on TikTok, however, of teenagers claiming to have what they're describing, not me, dissociative identity disorder and having multiple alters in quote unquote for the listeners who have no idea what that is can you explain that to them and why is it so jesus christ why is it so concerning right so i wrote about this on on my Substack. i called it acquired internet identity disorder as an alternative so did the actual description from the dsm is an extremely, extremely rare, to the point that a lot of people are not totally sure it exists, condition where someone is abused so severely over such a long period of time that their brain tries to protect them from the abuse that they're experiencing by forming alternate personalities that are meant to absorb the abuse and protect the main person from what they're experiencing and when i say like severe severe abuse i mean like i i experienced some abuse as a kid you know i think a lot of people that have this like tiktok version of it probably have experienced some sort of trauma in their lives but i'm talking like literally not talking to anybody being held under lock and key like being like repeatedly sexually assaulted or tortured for years and years on end beginning in early childhood like extremely severe extremely rare cases that the vast majority of people who claim to have DID have absolutely no relation to whatsoever and one of the main ways in which it's different from how it's manifesting on TikTok is people with true DID if it exists are not aware that they have other personalities they are not aware that they switch between these different people right uh, it's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. They don't know that it's actually happening to them. And that's that's proof of, of it being real. Now, what these people are doing on the internet, they're sort of play acting a little bit. Not totally. I think that there is some dissociation going on. I, I think that there is. And I, I've seen a couple of videos where it does seem to happen, but it seems to be intentionally practiced. And and so this is why I think that there is some, some trauma that's involved there. Like, I've had pretty bad dissociative spells as well but the way that it seems to go like they're they're proud of having like 23 altars and they have like names and backstories for all of them and you know they have all these different functions that they some of them are gatekeepers and some of them are archivists or whatever they have all these like terms for it it's this whole other language blowing up on tiktok and it's spreading i think among mostly autistic people and and people that have cluster b disorders or the start of cluster B disorders and and generally just teenagers like teenagers overall just have weak self-identity in the first place like they're still in the process of developing that I think that what they're doing is very similar to what trans is it's a way of giving your suffering more meaning it's a way of giving yourself like okay well this is who I don't know who I really am and this is why I don't know who I am 
in that piece that I wrote, I do compare it to trans because when I get into like dissociative states, like one of the things that I have to do to ground myself is I have to like filter myself through like Liliana, which was my trans name. I have to like get into the mindset that I am this person that I was never, that was never really real in the first place and then ground myself into, into who I, you know, into my real self, right? And I think that that's sort of what they're doing a little bit. Not all of them. A lot of them are faking it. A lot of them are just doing it for views. But then at a certain point, if you're performing it enough, it starts to become sort prophecy. of yeah. real. Yeah. Is this mass psychosis for children on a national scale? Would you go as far as saying that? Yeah, I would I would go so far as to say that. It is psychosis. It is, it is a... It's a sign that things are very, very bad right now. And I think, I do think that it's the internet doing it. I do think that it's primarily the internet doing it because, I mean, to use the internet for an extended period of time, you have to be able to dissociate, right? You have to be able to convince yourself that what you're seeing on the screen is real to a certain extent. And that divorces you from everything that is real around you. Like you do feel disconnected from your body after a certain amount of time. And kids don't know that. Kids don't realize that. And they're still developing. They're still learning how to use their bodies. Their bodies are still changing and they feel awkward and everything. And emotions are changing. Teenagers especially. I mean, teenagers have, they're still learning social dynamics. They're still forming social groups and whatnot. And then to expose them to the internet and social media where everything is, you know, it's high emotion all the time. Everyone's afraid of something. Everyone's angry about something. Everyone's... Everything's fucked. Um, <laughs> extremely positive. <laughs> Everything's fucked. But also, you know, everything is extremely positive, too. Like, these are all extreme emotions because internet companies are trying to, like, pull those things out so that you stay on the platform. It makes it hard for a child to learn how to regulate their own emotions because they're being regulated for them. As a final question before we move on, L, what so far has this D-Trans online journey taught you about yourself? Um, it's taught me that I am more capable of things than I gave myself credit for. I have been able to juggle, you know, these kinds of <laughs> internet flame wars, but also writing essays and stuff. And I started the um, D-Trans Discord server for men. As well, I've been juggling all of that while going to grad school, while keeping up with work, and it's been kind of rough. I think anybody, anybody in that server will, will acknowledge. Like I haven't had all my focus on it on on everything at once, but um, I've been managing it. I've been managing my emotions with all of this stuff as well. So I think I, I've learned that I I can give myself credit for some of these accomplishments, but I've also learned that I still have a little bit of a long ways to go when dealing with some of this stuff on a personal level. Not all of it is, is smoothed out, and especially when I come across people that refuse to acknowledge how complicated this all is, and they try to view all of it through, like, one specific filter. Like, I have trouble uh, not just, like, getting really fucking mad at them, you know? So I've learned that. I've learned some of this. I've learned some of that. I'm. It's been a lot. But I've also learned, like, I'm not nearly as bad of a person that, as I was afraid I was. And I've been a bad person. I've definitely been a bad person, but I'm not a sociopath and it's helpful to know that. <laughs> We've come to our final topic of conversation, L, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. 
So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Uh, it's been up and down. As of right now, right now, for the last week or so, I've been pretty good. I gotta say, I can't complain. I got a lot of stuff I needed to get done, done, and work has been going really smoothly and, you know, it's hard days and easy days, but take it all in stride. A couple of weeks ago, I wasn't doing as well. Like right after the Genspect webinar and whatnot, I was uh, not doing that hot because we were, all the guys were getting a lot of hate mail and we were responding to it because we were like, hey, 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 wait a second. I thought you wanted male detransitioners to talk about stuff. And they were like, no, actually, we only care about the girls. So it was, uh, yeah, at the time it wasn't, I wasn't doing as hot, but now I'm back on the horse and everything's, everything's going good. I'm way, way better than at any point in the last friggin' 10 years. Good stuff, man. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I was 14 or 13 even but I believed in that chemical imbalance theory and so I was like well mom and dad why don't you just give me SSRIs and they're like we really don't want to do that <laughs> and I was convinced that that was a sign that they were abusive or something I did go to therapy but it didn't really help because I didn't understand what therapy was for but that was the first time where I was like yeah it's definitely all in my head but it's also all real and there's nothing that I can do about it given what you just said there about therapy can you tell me about the first positive conversation you then had about your mental health with someone? So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I can't remember. I've had talks with people about some of this before and I don't remember the first time. But it did feel like a burden being lifted, but it's it's happened quite a few times. It, it's not just the first time. Having these burdens lifted and, and really diving deep about it, but sometimes when those burdens were lifted, it was under dubious circumstances. Like when I uh, went to Planned Parenthood and explained my gender dysphoria and they were like, yeah, we understand, you know. That felt great knowing like, okay, I'm going to get help. Then I wasn't getting help. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health then? So it could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, film, book, play. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I haven't figured all of them out yet. But I think my two biggest triggers are when people try to deny reality. Well, my biggest trigger. I think the one big trigger was when people try to deny reality. Or try to tell me that what I'm seeing is not real. And this has happened both in a school context and in a um, in a Twitter context. In school, I had this situation where a bunch of these kids were trying to like force their way out of the classroom like five minutes before lunch, trying to get ahead of everybody else. And I was just like, no, like I'm pulling the door closed. Like, no, you can't leave. You know, what are you doing? They were completely out of control. Absolutely. And it was my fault. I'm just in training. So I don't have all the tools in my toolkit yet to deal with that. But after the fact, one of the girls that was doing it denied any involvement whatsoever. She denied having yelled a bunch of insults. She denied having like tried to pull the door open. Like she denied all like everything. And it just like infuriated me. And I went off about it to the principal and explaining like, listen, she's going to deny everything. She's saying that she never did any of this. Her friends are backing her up. But if you've listened to anybody else in the classroom, they all know what she's like and, and whatever. But 
that really gets my goat when someone's just trying to outright deny their own involvement in something. And then um, the other, the Twitter incident, is uh, this woman who I guess I won't name because I've already beat that horse to death, but she at one point in November said that to prevent boys from developing AGP, we need to develop some sort of screening mechanism for it and try to lower the testosterone as they're developing to prevent them from developing AGP because she was under the assumption that high T is what causes AGP and not like a million other factors. And she deleted that tweet and myself and a couple of other people were looking for that screenshot because she was like outright denying having ever said anything like that. We found the screenshot and she just kept on denying like, oh, you you know, like I'm too good of a person to think about this. This isn't what I said. I never said anything about chemically castrating boys. I never said anything like that. You don't understand what I mean. All this kind of bullshit. And, and, and not only that, but she was like being sickly sweet about it too. Like, I understand that this is a very emotionally turbulent topic for you. And, but I still think you're a good person or whatever. And I was just having absolutely none of it. I was like raking her over the coals and I'm still sort of doing that a little bit because she still refuses to admit that that's what she said. She still doesn't want to admit like, yeah, I'm all for medicalizing these young boys. Just don't tell me that I'm uh, in favor of transitioning them, right? That's as far as that she's willing to go. And there are a lot of other women that are like, she's, she's fairly prominent in like the gender critical side of Twitter or whatever. And pretty much everyone who's in her on her side is like backing her up on all this. Her main problem with what she said wasn't that she advocated for that. Her main problem was that she spread misinformation that high T causes AGP. Like she had more, more concern about spreading false facts and what, and that just, Man, I was, for days, I was hung up on that. Just because it's like, it's right there. It's right there. You literally said what I'm repeating back, and you're telling me that you didn't say it. That's a big mess. I think I saw that when it happened. That's a big, big mess. Let's move on to positive things. So what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health, mate, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I do go to the gym a lot. I think that that helps a lot with anxiety and restlessness and other terrible feelings. I used to journal a lot. I don't journal as much anymore. I think partially just because I don't feel my feelings as deeply as I used to when I was on estrogen. I try to practice not mindfulness. I don't try to gauge my emotions as much anymore I, I try to gauge more like where my body is because i find that i i do dissociate unconsciously very often and i try to like think about like okay if i'm feeling icky trying to like pinpoint where it is that i'm feeling the grossest and like moving it around or massaging it or something i take some supplements too it's helpful with autism i take omega-3 fish oil i know cytol which I'm not entirely sure what it is, but a friend recommended it to me and it helps a lot with like OCD type symptoms. And those things help a lot. I find that since coming off of estrogen, I'm less inclined to want to like talk to therapists about these problems. I talk more like to friends or, or something or, or I just use those feelings to sort of like propel me into doing some work or whatnot. But I don't have enough really bad mental health situations to do much else I don't I don't have you know any elaborate sort of rituals I just constantly remind myself like this is a work in progress and and tomorrow will be a better day if today isn't that's the best way to say it mate I've got two questions left so one is 
what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Oh, man, I have a few. So the best one, the absolute best one that I've ever read that literally like changed my whole approach to things was Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. I know the book. By it's on my Walker. reading list of 85 plus books I've got to get through. <laughs> It is honestly very fantastic. It is very fantastic. It's I, w- I would recommend it for anybody who had a turbulent childhood, but not like one big trauma. That was very helpful. I've also read a DBT handbook for borderlines. That was also helpful, like trying to build up my own emotional skin. So dialectical behavioral therapy for borderline patients. I was never diagnosed with borderline, but I had cluster B-ish type, you know, stuff. It tends to go hand in hand with CPTSD anyway, so... I would also say, let me think, there was, there was a big philosophy book, two big philosophy books that were important for me. So one of them was not a book, it was just a bunch of readings by Nietzsche. I think Nietzsche is very uh, helpful for understanding like where some of these tendencies come from in society and whatnot. And then the other one is Liquid Modernity by uh, Zygmunt Bauman. His thesis is that postmodernism isn't real but that we went from early capitalism went from being this very solid thing that was going to be like, you know, they tried to build a legacy, they tried to build like dynasties, whatever. But now because of the internal mechanisms of modernity, like we're sliding towards a much more fluid existence as human beings where our social relations are constantly being upended over and over again. And that was also helpful for me at least because My family had the experience of immigrating after communism and integrating into this whole new world. And then I had to sort of deal with the legacy of both. And now we're in a whole new world now. And that was also helpful for me to see the external factors that are very big and broad. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in talking about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it um man that's i think one of the ways to do it really is um i don't know that's not something I really think about. <laughs> it's I'm a broad question you can honest. answer it any way you want i'll be totally real I, I think just talking about it for men is not usually enough you know you're you're more active we right? need solutions um, don't we it's more about yeah. doing stuff yeah we like solutions i think hmm I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that. Ironically, talking about, I, I talk about it quite openly, but I just felt like I was filling, uh, filling a void there. You know, I think, I think for a lot of men, they prefer to deal with it on their own, and I think that that generally works, you know. I think for anybody that wants to talk about it openly, they should just sort of break through whatever's holding them back and just, and just try to, to get it out there and, and just steal themselves for whatever reaction comes. But as a broad solution like you know I, I don't know i think a lot of people talk about mental health without actually trying to benefit anybody so it's hard to it's hard to say that's a completely acceptable answer mate and don't worry that's a very broad question so sometimes it stumps people sometimes it it doesn't but on that note limpida thank you so much mate for coming on the just checking podcast and talking to me it's been an absolute privilege it's been wonderful talking to you freddie i'm i'm like really really happy that uh, that you invited me on 
Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big, big thank you to Limpada for being my special guest for this episode and for checking in with me. I'll put some links to where you can follow him on social media and subscribe to his Substack in the show notes. I am very, very grateful to him for being the first male detransitioner on the Just Checking In podcast. And I hope his story probably does shock you. But I hope it probably makes you reflect on how we can better help these gender non-conforming children feel supported. I'll sign us off by saying, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media, share it with your friends, share it with your work colleagues, share it with your family. Please give us a review or five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you can to help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or if you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.